there's any confusion, um, that big green arrow in the center is where we find ourselves this week. I realize that PowerPoint has way more to do that you can use it for, and so this week I got crazy and I put an arrow on the picture. <laughs> My public school education is paying off. And it used to be sticky notes. <laughs> I was just going to stick a sticky arrow up there. But you know, people, you know, my wife was like, why don't you just put an arrow on there? I was like, you can do that? Awesome. So here we find ourselves in Acts chapter 20. And last week, Paul had basically, um, he had, from the point we started last week to the point that we finished, he had left Ephesus, which is just above that green arrow. He had gone over the Aegean Sea to Macedonia and Achaia, and he had traveled all the way back. Now, obviously, this didn't happen in the matter of, you know, an hour like we had. This happened over the course of several months, maybe even years. But the reality is, is that Paul went over there for a purpose, not only to encourage and strengthen the churches there, but also to gather a, a monetary gift from those churches to bring back some of them coming with people to make sure that Paul wasn't, he was being held accountable to that money, but his heart is to take money from those churches, not for himself, but to bring it back to the church at Jerusalem who was suffering under persecution. And many of them were not able to have jobs because they were now Christians. And so Paul's heart was to bless the source of the blessing, the church there in Jerusalem. And so he used the churches that had heard, but had never met any of the people there. So he was unifying the church through the sharing of their gifts. And so as he's bringing this gift back, Paul's been expressing and has expressed to him that this is his last time he'll get to see many of these people. And so he's taking advantage of this opportunity to express his heart for them as churches, as individuals, and as leaders. And as he's on the way back, he is gone through Troas. Last week he had a Bible study on the Lord's Day on the Sunday, on the Sabbath. And as he was there having that Bible study, they had it all the way till midnight. And there was a young man, we talked about it last week, he was a young teenager, and he was listening to the Bible study well into midnight, and it says that he was overtaken by sleep. And that sleep that he was overtaken by, he was willing to listen, but he was worn out, and Paul had been going on for a while. He was sitting there in the window and he fell out during the service. And when he fell out, Paul didn't miss a wink. He went downstairs, he went outside. The Lord had confirmed in his heart that God was getting ready to do something special. And it says that that young man, though he was taken up dead by falling out of the window, that the Lord healed him and brought him back to life. And so as he's brought back to life, so is the worship service. And as they go back upstairs, it says that they fellowshiped and Paul encouraged them with many words until daybreak. So Paul has continued teaching them because he's only got one night to do it because he's getting ready to leave and he's going to continue on this trip back to Jerusalem, which he's hoping to make it there by Pentecost, which is the Feast of Weeks that happens after the Passover that they celebrate. So Paul's got this gift, this financial gift, he leaves Troas, and he heads down the coast, the little black dotted line, past Ephesus to Miletus. And we read last week 
in verse 16, it says, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And so he sails past Ephesus, this very large city where he had spent somewhere up to three years ministering there, and he passes it up, not to avoid them completely, but because he knew he didn't have enough time to stay there and have a, a decent visit. So rather than going there just for a short time, leaving people like feeling left out, he goes down to Miletus, and there he calls for the Ephesian elders, the leaders of the church, to come and visit him so he can basically give them his last words and speak to them. And this is the first time that we see Paul addressing believers in the book of Acts. Every other time that we see him expressing a message in the book of Acts, Luke records evangelistic messages, messages that are for people that do not believe in Jesus. And so Paul expresses his heart for ministry to these Ephesian elders here in Miletus. So in verse 17 is where we'll start. It says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus, he called for the elders of the church, and when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. So he expresses to them, first and foremost, before he starts just teaching them information, he says, Number one, I want you to look at the example that I lived before you. I was among you. And as I lived before you, I want you also not, he's not making himself an example instead of Jesus. He's saying, you can look at my life and you can see that I was imitating Jesus. And so as I imitated Jesus, so also as Christians, as leaders in the church, I want you to Imitate Jesus as I've imitated Jesus before the people that you're living before. Those people in the church that you're leading, your example to them should not just be a bunch of words. It should be your conduct. And then he expresses to them, here was how my conduct was. And of course, in a smaller group, Paul expressing himself leaves lots of room for them, just like many weeks in, in a smaller congregation. If I were to say something, you guys could very easily go, wait a minute, you're not doing that. And, and I encourage you, you know, maybe not in this format, but if you see something in my life that's not living up to what I'm supposedly supposed to believe, call me out on it. I need that just as much as anybody else does. And so, but realize that when you do that, you're opening yourselves up. To, we, it's a two-way thing. We're here as a body of believers to hold each other accountable. So Paul's saying this in front of the people that knew him the best, the people that he spent the most time with. And so by the end of his message today, they could have very easily said, hey, wait a minute, you're saying this, but it's not really true. And Luke would have recorded that because the Bible is honest about its leaders. It's honest about its heroes. Some of the most uh, amazing men of faith, it's, it tells their biggest flaws, not so that they would be discredited, but so that it would be accounted to the grace of God on their lives, that God used them anyway. So he says, you know from the first day that I came to Asia 
in what manner I always lived among you. And then he lists it out. He says, serving the Lord with all humility. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I instead proclaimed it to you, and I taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks. And this is what he testified. Repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So he reminds them of his conduct amongst them. He says a servant of Jesus must live a transparent life among those that they serve. Being in ministry, serving the body of Christ is like living in a fishbowl. All the things that happen in your life anyway, they're magnified by the very fact that you're in front a lot more than most people. So for anybody that aspires to be in ministry, you have to count that cost. You're going to go under more scrutiny, which is good because James says, be there not many teachers because in the church because they will have, be doubly accountable to the Lord for what they've spoken, for what they've taught. So he says, you know in what manner I always lived among you. Another thing he says is a servant of Jesus is to be humble, to reflect the character of God. He says, I was serving in all humility. Paul didn't think of himself of this as this uh, religious uh, celebrity. And we see those on TV, especially with what's going on in Ferguson. We see all this uproar, and then all of a sudden these reverend people come out of the woodworks, they get on the news, they speak on behalf of those that are rioting, and then they draw people away. But the reality is, is that anybody that does that is serving their own appetites, Romans chapter 16 says they're serving their own appetites. They do not serve Jesus. Anybody that doesn't come along and, and, and conduct themselves humbly. But Paul says, I was humble in front of you. I didn't, I didn't try to make you guys serve me. I offered to you what I had to give. A servant goes through tears and trials just like anyone else. That's another thing he says. Paul went through trials even though he was doing the Lord's will. Many people say, well, if you serve God, then it will always be easy. But on the contrary, in reality, sometimes to serve God means that you lay your own things aside, your own attitudes, your own habits, your own hobbies sometimes, so that people will know the Lord. He says that the trials and the tears that he went through happened according to the plotting of the Jews. Many times the, the Jews would plot against Paul, which is amazing to me because who did Paul love more than anybody? Paul was called to be a, the apostle to the Gentiles. But nevertheless, every time he went into a city, we've seen it over and over and over again, the first people that he went to were the Jews because he loved them. That's where his heart was. That's the people through whom God sent the Messiah. And so he thought, you know, I need to share with them that the hope of Israel has come and he's come for them just as well as anybody else. Paul's heart was for them because he was from them. Paul was Jewish himself. He loved them to the point he was willing to, to share the gospel with them knowing that more than likely they were going to reject the gospel and they were going to reject him. Sometimes the people that we love the most, that we invest most of our time 
efforts and abilities into are the first ones to hurt us, to lash out to us. And Paul experienced this. Paul also teaches them in this passage that a servant of Jesus is not selfish, but one who gives freely. That which God has freely provided for him to give, Paul gave it freely. He said, I I held nothing back from you that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you, even knowing that some of you that would reject it and some of you wouldn't like me anymore. Paul didn't just teach the things that would make the people feel good, but sometimes he taught the things that would maybe even cut away at the, the bad character habits that they had. He would call people out when they were in sin, not because he hated them, but because he loved them enough to say, hey, that sin that you're doing is going to hurt you and the people that are around you. Therefore, I'm going to tell you about it. Just like a doctor that tells a patient, hey, look, I know this isn't the news that you want to hear, but you have cancer. Now, nobody wants to be told that they have cancer because the reality sets in and all of a sudden their life what they thought they, they were going to live out for years and years and years is cut short. And Paul sees sin as not just a character attribute that's bad or something that's not good for them to do, but sin causes death. It's something that's harmful to the person that continues in it. And so Paul, he says, I didn't hold anything back from you, but I continued to tell you of the things that are going to hurt you. Not to be a bummer, but to free you from sin, to give you a victorious life, to heal you of the things that you didn't even know were hurting you. So he kept nothing back. He didn't hold back when it came to teaching the word of God. A servant of Jesus is the same publicly as he is in private. He or she is without hypocrisy. He says, I taught you publicly and I taught you from house to house. The things that Paul taught out in public were the same things that he taught when he was with people one-on-one. He wasn't one thing in one place and a whole different thing in another. How many people do we know? Maybe even some of us in here. We have this way of portraying ourselves in public, but when it gets to the one-on-one relationships, we deal with people totally different. Paul says, I wasn't like that at all. If you met me in a dark alley and I spoke to you, It was the same Paul that you would get when he was preaching to the masses. He taught things in public and in private the same. He says, I was always the same with you. And then he says, a servant of Jesus is to be able to reach whoever God puts in front of them as he sees fit. He says, testifying to both Jews and the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He's able to reach whoever God puts in front of them. He says, I I preach to the Greeks. I preach to the Gentiles. Whoever would give ear to what I had to say, I taught them the same things. I didn't limit the love of God and the message of God to one audience or another. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I struggle with this because I see that there are some people that to me, because I can relate to them, are more worthy to hear the gospel. And then there are some people that I can't stand that I'm less likely to tell the truths of God to because of my own personal prejudice. But Paul lived out the, for God so loved the whole world that he gave his life, Jesus, so that whoever, whosoever, 
We can't limit God's love. And when we do, we don't reflect God's character and we portray to people that he loves one group of people over another. We can't do that. We can't hold the love of God tight-fistedly. We have to give it freely because we received it freely. And then he says a servant of Jesus is sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And he says this by explaining to them in verse 22 and 23. He says, you've seen my character. And then in verse 22, he says, and see now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that I know this, the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations await me there. So for Paul, God's will for his life was to go to Jerusalem. He knew that. He had proclaimed the word to all of Asia, to Macedonia, to Achaia. And now it was God's will for him to go back to Jerusalem, not only with this gift, but to worship the Lord. And everywhere he went, there were people with the gift of prophecy saying, Paul, I know you feel like it's God's will for you to go back to Jerusalem, but if you go there, there are chains that await you there. God's going to allow you to be put into chains if you go there. But Paul said, knowing this, I'm still going. That's God's will for me. Because God is going to take Paul, we'll see this through the end of the book of Acts, Paul's going to, God's going to take Paul from these towns all the way to Rome to preach the gospel even before the king of all the land, Caesar. And Caesar is going to hear the gospel and have the opportunity to receive Jesus because of Paul's chains. And not only that, but Paul's going to go to Rome and he's going to plant a church there. And God is going to use Paul's imprisonment so that Paul can not only plant a church there, but he's going to write most of the letters of the, the New Testament to the churches that he already ministered to while he's got free time. He's going to be basically stuck in a chair, chained to a Roman guard. And because of that, he's going to witness to them. But in his free time, he's also going to write letters to the churches to build them up and to strengthen them, even though he's in prison. So Paul says, basically in many of his letters, though I'm in jail, though I'm a prisoner, I'm not a prisoner to Rome. I'm a prisoner of God to share the gospel. Even his imprisonment, he saw as God using Romans 8.28, he says, God uses all things together for the good of them that love him and are called according to his purpose. And God's purpose was to allow Paul to go in chains to Rome. So then in verse 24, here's the key verse. He's explained his character among them. He's explained that God's call for him is to go to Jerusalem and to be put in chains. And then in verse 24, here's the key verse. He says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul explains that though the cost will be high, the things that it will cost him, even his own freedom, it will not cause him to waver from what God has given him to do. The threats of being put in chains, the possibility of losing his life, He's sure that this is God's call for his life. So all these threats, all these things that could cause doubt, 
None of them shake him. None of them cause him to stop doing what God's given him to do. So I ask you, why is that? Why is he so sure? Why don't these things have any effect on Paul's resolve to continue anyway? Well, the phrase says there in verse 24, I don't count my life dear to me. And if there's one thing that I can tell you all that I struggle with more than anything is that I count my life dear to myself and that's what causes me the most sorrow in my Christian walk. That when God gives me something to do, it always costs me what I have already planned. And since I count my life dear to myself rather than counting God's call on my life more dear than my life, it causes me sorrow. It robs me of joy. And if there's anything that I can say that Paul had mastered, Paul had mastered not counting his life dear to himself, not holding his life with a closed fist. He saw all the things that had happened to him and he saw all the results of God using his life as more important to him than whatever he thought that he might have to give up. And because Paul didn't count his life dear to himself, he, he, he experienced joy that you and I, many of us, have never experienced. He says, but none of these things move me, and I don't count my life dear to myself. And here's why he didn't count his life dear to himself. He said, here's my end result, here's my goal, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. His end result was not just to begin well, but it was to finish well. And anybody that's ever ran in a race or competed in anything knows that competing to win takes sacrifice, doesn't it? We just watched the Thanksgiving tournament, some of us more than others. In order to practice for those games, those boys are willing to give up anything. Some of them won't eat as much. Some of them will eat things they don't like. They'll eat their veggies, maybe some spinach, go Popeye on it. Some of them will give up their social activities to practice, right? Some of them will give up family time. Maybe even they won't watch their favorite show because they got practice. Some of them will, they'll, they'll sacrifice things so that what? So they can win. I want to win the race. Cross-country state just happened. What happened is those boys would spend uber amounts of time running. How many of those boys would love to run all the time? Some of them would. I think they're nuts, but that's what they like to do. So that they could win the race. They'll give up their free time to practice to win the race. Paul says when you compete for that crown, for that reward, that reward, though it's awesome, it's perishable. You can't take it with you. It's a good goal. And many of us, when we compete in those things, our bodies are, are more physically fit than they ever will be. But the reality is, as Paul says, I don't count my life dear to me, not for the sake of a perishable crown or trophy or medal, but for a crown that will never fade. Paul says, I'm willing to sacrifice my life because my treasure, my hope, my reward, it's going to be in heaven. And I will sacrifice whatever it takes 
to live that out so that others will experience the gospel of the grace of God. Knowing that my sins were forgiven me. Knowing there are many people, even in our own valley, that are completely chained to the sinful lifestyles that have overtaken them and they will never experience a joyful expression of life because sin has blinded them to themselves. They're chained to it. They're ruled by it. They're sacrificing their lives still, not for the sake of the glory of God, but for the sake of their own pleasures that never will fulfill them. Never. Whether it's a relationship, whether it's a medal, those things are fun and they're good. There's nothing sinful about them unless they get in between us and our relationship with God. And they will rob us of the joy that God has promised us if they take place, number one. And so Paul says, I don't count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. And you will never experience more joy in your life until you know the purpose that God has given you. And when you know the purpose that God's given you, sacrifice life and limb to fulfill that purpose and you will experience the joy that Paul's expressing here. He's expressing it not so much in words, but in example. And the people that follow you as you pursue, as you persecute towards that end goal, they will experience the love of God and then they will have meaning and purpose. And all their fears, all their doubts about whether or not anybody loves them will pass away because they'll have a, a real relationship with a God that cares. So Paul says this. In verse 25, he continues, he says, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. So I'm going to tell you some things because I'll never get to talk to you again. Not this side of heaven. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I've not shunned, in other words, I've not neglected to declare to you the entire counsel of God. He says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. God's people mean very much to him. He was willing to shed his own blood to purchase their very salvation. Therefore, my end goal is to build them up in this most holy faith. And the way that I did it was I did not neglect to teach them the entire word of God. That's why every week I spend time in the word of God to faithfully get a meal for myself and to feed you all. Not because I'm the only one that can but because for whatever reason, God has brought me here. He's brought you all here so that I can teach you about the bread of life so that your lives would be sustained on it so that you'd be strengthened in the faith and that you would go home and you would build up your families in the same way. And as you do that, what happens is that our homes, our very lives become a testimony to the grace and the faith of God. And then in doing that, we not only save ourselves by working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, but anyone who will listen to us will also be saved. Whether it's our kids in our own home or whether it's the people we come into contact with. And so Paul says here, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I've fulfilled the calling God's placed on my life. You ever experience true peace? 
Paul experienced true peace because he had done everything that God gave him to do in the church at Ephesus. He spent three years there teaching them, in their homes and out of them. And then he tells them, here's why you need to take heed. Here's why you need to lean in and listen to all the things that I've taught you. Verse 29, for I know this, that after I depart, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He's talking about these people that will come in from the outside to draw people away to ravage them, to teach them things that are contrary to the word of God, to draw them away from their faith in Jesus. They'll come from without, people that are not in the church, and also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. He's talking about people that rise up within the church of God, whether it's in this church or in others. They'll call themselves Christians, And they will twist the words of God to mean something that it doesn't mean. And they'll do that to draw people away from the truth of God that's in the Bible so that they can get their own little click. And when they do that, they're not sparing the flock and they're trying to draw disciples away to themselves. He says, therefore, and he's telling these elders, these leaders of the church, he says, therefore, watch. Watch that this this is going to happen. Watch for it. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. In other words, when this takes place, remember I told you that it would. Don't be caught by surprise. It's going to happen. But then deal with them. Know the difference between what is true and what is false. And when you do that, guard the flock. Warn them. Teach them to walk on their own. Avoid poisonous teaching. And then verse 32, after he warns them, he says, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He explains, knowing these things, I still got to go. I can't stay here. Uh, I can't be here forever. God's called me to a different place. But in the meantime, here's who I commend you to. I'm not God, he is. So I'm commending you to his leadership. Paul recognized that the church being healthy and being sustained, if it's dependent upon him, then it's gonna fail because even if he didn't leave, he was gonna die. At some point, we all do. So he commends the leadership. He says, follow God. I commend you to him. His leadership is far beyond mine, he says. And then he says, I commend you to the word of God. And here's why. Because it's able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says, I commend you to the word of God because it's the only thing that will sustain you through this life. It's the only thing that will give you wisdom beyond what any man can give you. And it will give you an inheritance that goes beyond this world. He says, Then he says in verse 33, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. In other words, I'm not teaching you these things because I gained any money. I'm not doing it because I make money doing it. I'm not a swindler. I'm not a charlatan. I'm not here because I get any gain. He's saying, I myself, you witnessed me 
I worked with my hands. I earned my own living. Not desiring to get something from you, but to impart to you what God has first given to me. And so that's where I find my example. The Lord's given me a spot to live in this valley, not to earn money. I don't get anything from serving the church other than my reward, which is in heaven. And so I work with my hands. I earn a living. And then Paul's basically telling them, I don't have ulterior motives. Somebody comes along and says, well, that Paul, he was just doing that so he could earn money. Paul says, they can't have that excuse because I didn't, I didn't take a paycheck. I have shown you, verse 35, in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, we don't have these words of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But in John chapter 21, verse 25, John writes there, he says, There are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, everything that Jesus said and everything that he taught, it's not all written down. But the reality is that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And I love hearing the stories. You know, Heather, you've shared a couple with me about how you're trying to teach your kids. And it's not always about getting. Sometimes it's about giving. And you're, and you're, you're living that out. And the reality is, is that that's how the Lord's character is shown in his disciples. But notice also what he says in verse 36. Luke writes down an eyewitness account. He says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with all those elders. And then they all wept freely. They fell on Paul's neck. They gave him a big old stinking hug. And they kissed him. Now, guys, don't be kissing me. But what, that's a cultural thing. They were, they were giving him a kiss. They weren't going to see him ever again. They were lavishing love on him because he was somebody that had labored among them, had shared his life with them, and they were going to miss him. Just like we do our own families at the end of the holidays. You know, some of them more than others, but when we know we're not going to see him maybe till next year again, there's this lingering that happens when we're saying bye. So Paul's experiencing this. He stops, he kneels down. They all have a wonderful time of prayer and fellowship together. They pray for Paul. Paul prays for them. He's, they, it's like when you send your kids off to college or, or when you send them off to move to a different place. You're gonna miss them. You spent your whole last 18 years loving them. Paul had spent three years sacrificing his life to love on them. We see that in Acts chapter 19. It's all chronicled there. But Paul, because his treasure, his, his finances, his time, his abilities had been poured into these people, he didn't want to leave. And he loved them. Jesus said, where your treasure lies, there your heart will be also. So then they all wept freely. They fell on Paul's neck. They kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke. Here's why they were sorry. Not because he was leaving. He'd already done that before but because they would see his face no more. So they accompanied him to the ship. Every time I go see my grandma, this is what happens. We say, bye, grandma. We give hugs, we give kisses. We walk out the door. She's right on our tail. She walks all the way up to the car, just taking in every moment. That's what these people are doing. 
If there was anything about what Paul had just said that was a big fat lie, and that his testimony of himself was not true, they wouldn't have wanted to go all the way to the ship. They'd have said, see you, get out of here, we're tired of you. But no, they didn't. They said, you have loved us, and we thank you for that. He says, you know, I hope that you'd be stable. In Ephesians chapter 3, and then we'll close, Paul writes to them, in verse 14, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. He saw it as a family, not just mere acquaintances. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you may be established. And he says it this way, that you being rooted and grounded in love, the idea is to be established like a house built on a sturdy foundation, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height, the dimensions to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This was his desire for the Ephesian church, that they would be established. That all the things that could happen to them, and many things happen to us in this life, my prayer, just like Paul for the Ephesian church, is that you guys would be established in the love of God, that you would know who you are because of what God has already done for you, and that his love, being experienced by you, would overflow through your lives, and you would be able to have the same testimony that Paul had for this Ephesian church amongst those who you live amongst, those who you have life with, your families, your friends, you know, your kids' ex-girlfriends, that they would all experience the love of God that surpasses knowledge, that people would know, hey, the love that you have for one another, it's not a love that the world has to offer. It's a love that Jesus Christ poured out on us. And the only reason that we can show it to people is that we first experienced it personally. Not because it's easy, but because it's the love of God. It's, and, and I say that because in the book of Revelation in chapter 2, Jesus writes a letter to the Ephesian church in the future. He, he writes it outside of the context of this world. He writes it to them down the road through the Apostle John in the book of prophecy in Revelation. He writes to them, he says, you guys are abounding in works. You're loving people. You're patient with them. But here's the one thing that I have against you. You've left your first love. The things that I've asked you to do, they're becoming a burden to you because you've forgotten how much God's first loved you. He says, repent and do your beginning works. Fall in love with Jesus all over again. When he says you've left your first love, it's like in a marriage when you've been married to somebody for more than a few months in that, you know, that dating relationship that kind of, you know, people say the honeymoon's over. He says, go back to the first things. Go back to that honeymoon stage. It doesn't have to end. That's something that does end, but it's because you stop doing all the extra stuff like opening the door, going out and starting your wife's car. You know, all those little things that, that add up to that giddiness, you know, not, not, always being willing to do those little things. But how do we go back to that first love with the Lord? 
This Ephesian church was doing all the right stuff, but because they had forgotten how much God loved them, because they had neglected that first love relationship with Jesus, it was a burden to them. So Jesus said, repent, come back to my feet, spend time with me, remember how much I've done for you. Because this Ephesian church, even though they had Paul, even though they had all these elders that were no doubt awesome, they still grew cold. And so the Lord said, remember what I've done for you. And that will make you doing all the right things, you'll do it for the right reasons. So, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your unending love. I thank you for your willingness to love us to the point where we just see the sacrifices you made. And I thank you for Paul's example where he just basically did for his people what you did for him. And what an amazing impact that made, not only on Ephesus, but to all of Asia. Would it be said that we knew how much you loved us to the point where we were reminded of it daily and it caused us to love individual people just like Paul did individual people in Ephesus? And would it be said of us that we, a little church in Ironton, would reach all of the Arcadia Valley through our relationships and that we would reach all the way past our county lines. Lord, help us to be completely set apart, wanting to finish the race that, that this life you've given us to win. Not just to get by, but to win, to receive a crown, to receive rewards that will never perish. Lord, help us to build up treasure in heaven, not here where moth and rust destroy, but in heaven where we'll be able to receive that reward and then give it back to you, the one who gave us the ability to do it in the first place. Father, we love you. We thank you for this word from Paul. We just pray that as we go through this season of Thanksgiving, as we go through the season of Christmas, that our lives would truly reflect the heart of Paul that reflected Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be your hands and feet. In Jesus' name, amen.